Book a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, and it is October 11th. That marks the quarter mark for the amount of time that Florida students have been in school for the 2018-19 school year. Two things would have happened by this time this year. They should have had several active shooter drills under the new state law for school safety, and we should be knowing by now as schools are taking their formal counts of how many students are in them, which ones are crowded, which ones are meeting class size, and so forth. Today, reporter Megan Reeves and I will be discussing those two issues and how they're playing out throughout the school districts and what implications, if any, there are for what happens going forward. Megan Reeves, welcome back to the Gradebook Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. You have been spending a lot of time calling school districts across the state of Florida for one of these security issues that probably is playing out everywhere. And and so what are you learning? What are you looking at? So um, I I recently moved from covering Hernando schools to schools in Pinellas County. And when I got here, there was a lot of talk about the new active shooter drills um, being instituted by the district as a result of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting and the legislation that came after that. So um, parents were taken to Facebook, calling me, um, school board members were saying at meetings that they were a little concerned about the frequency of drills in Pinellas. So the law says that drills for active shooter and hostage situations shall be conducted at least as often as other emergency drills. And because the language in, in the law is so vague, different districts are really interpreting it differently. So... In Pinellas, for example, uh, they're holding 10 or, or monthly, so that works out to be 10 or 11, depending on, you know, the length of the year, um, active shooter drills a year. And, and parents are just a little concerned that that's too frequent, you know, for, for students to be addressed with that kind of information. Um, what then, is wrong? Can I ask you, what sure. is wrong with the whole idea of having it be once a month? I mean, that is when they do... What, like you said, other drills, like fire drills, for instance. And right. so is there a problem? Are they scaring people? Is there something to do with the topic or the approach? Right. So um, everyone kind of in this whole equation feels differently about it, um, depending on their background. So another part of that legislation uh, was for school districts to establish uh, an office of safe schools or a, a security division and have kind of a head of school safety and security. So, um, some of, some, in some districts, that person is someone with ex, you know, an ex law enforcement officer, someone with law enforcement experience or military experience. And then on the other hand, some districts hired behavioral specialists or, you know, longtime educators or principals who, um, have a very different kind of background and, and different way of approaching these new security measures required by the state. So, um, the, the problem is that the direction from the state in the law is, is not very clear. It doesn't say, you know, we need this many drills a year at, you know, at this specific time and this is what they need to entail. It just simply says drills for active shooters need to be held as often as other drills. So do you look at fire drills, which are, you know, do you compare them to fire drills and hold them that frequently, 10 times a year or monthly? Or, um, do you look at extreme weather drills or, or other kind of emergency situation drills that are held only 
twice a year or four times a year. So depending on who you are and, and kind of what your perspective is about how kids should train for these kinds of events, um, it, it's looking very different in, in districts across the state. I guess I'm curious what is making parents be so upset about it. They talk about wanting their children to be safe when there are not guards or or security officers or somebody in front of the school. Like what happened, I remember years back in Hillsborough County, after there were just even talks of threats around certain places, they demanded the police officers be out there. Now they suddenly find out that the actual drills are happening and they don't like them? Right. So what I've been hearing from from the people who are kind of in the camp that that monthly is too often. Um, some educators who have told me that that just disrupts education. It's too often for a child to be out of the classroom, um, that they're missing valuable time for the main purpose why kids are in school, which is to be educated and to learn. Um, How another- much time are they spending? So, so that that, that kind of gets into, you know, goes back to the law being vague. It depends on how these districts um, decide to meet the mandate. You know, are they are they taking kids out of the classroom or, or you know, how long are these taking? What's what even material is involved in them? Um, a lot of that is, is really left up to districts to decide. And, um, you know, another another kind of criticism is that if you hold drills this often, that could make children fearful, you know, once a month for them to be getting up from their classroom, acting as if there's an active shooter on, you know, on their campus. um, You know, what does that do to a kid's psyche? What does that do to a kid's, um, I guess, feeling about school? You know, I mean, is that making them feel safer? Or is that making them fear, feel less safe? Um, And then, Kind of on the other side of the coin, there's people I've, I've spoken to, parents, educators, um, and, and really all across the state. I've, I've heard this in multiple districts um, that maybe holding them this often could cause complacency. You know, you, you think of a high schooler going through um, a fire drill, kind of just going through the motions and, and kind of doing this to satisfy whatever their teacher's telling them to do. But are they really learning anything when they're exposed to it that often? Do they even leave the school? I know I've seen it where the bell goes off or the horn or whatever it is. And people go like, oh, fire drill. And everybody just goes back to their business until right. it's like, we, exactly. we better move. We better move. Exactly. So it's it, it's how seriously are kids taking this? And do they take it more seriously if they're held more often or less often? And really what's interesting is that there's no um, really, really data backing any of these decisions up, you, you know, because this is these kinds of drills have never really been done before. Um, and, and talking to, you know, educators, um, who are, who are older, they're, they're kind of recounting, you know, when I was in school, we hid under our desk for nuclear, nuclear bomb, you know, drills. And, and this has happened before, but, you know, for, for these kids, this is the first time that they're seeing this kind of material at this level of frequency. So what is the next step? Are they just trying to figure out what the best quality drill is and the frequency that is most useful and most helpful? Right. So um, really, there, there hasn't been a ton of direction from the state um, other than the law. Uh, DOE, the Department of Education, came out with a kind of a bullet point list as a resource to school districts, you know, just to kind of reiterate how they need to be in compliance of the new law. And, and that even furthered confusion. It really didn't help because um, in, in kind of this bullet point list that they put out, um, DOE said, these drills have to be held at least once per semester. So then that leaves you to think, okay, twice a year is fine. So then that's that's kind of how districts are looking at it is, 
well, that's what DOE said, but that's not what the law says. Um, and, and then you talk to school board attorneys and they all have different opinions. They've all, you know, reached out to, um, their counterparts in other districts or, or reached out to DOE. And, um, really it just seems like a, a, really a mess right now, um, that really nobody understands exactly, can't, you know, say without a shadow of a doubt, um, what they're supposed to be doing. So I think right now districts are just looking at DOE, looking at the state um, for more direction. And um, unfortunately, with the hurricane this week, I, I haven't been able to get in touch with anyone at the department because it's shut down. Um, but th- but that's kind of my question for them is when will, you know, this this direction come? When will districts get more specific information? Um, and and I, I think I think really that's where we're at is just everyone kind of looking and waiting. Did any district say that they felt that they had the right mix? I know I visited one school district where they said that they were interspersing lessons about safety and security, you know, like just sitting down and talking about it with other things like everybody hurrying up and barricading a door. And they felt like that was more of a way to not make it be freaky, but and also to understand what school safety is about, because if you're not safe in school, then anything could happen. Yeah, Jeff, I think that's a really good point. Um, because I think, you know, when you look at I, I've called almost every district in the state at this point, and really, it's all over the map, um, how, how, you know, leaders in these school districts are approaching these new requirements. Um, so like I said, in Pinellas, they're doing monthly drills, Broward's doing monthly drills, Charlotte, Collier, Polk, Lee, um, and then some like Hernando or Volusia or uh, Marion, they're all doing only twice a year. Um, and then there's, uh, there's in Hillsborough, Flagler, Pasco, and a couple others, they're doing four a year. But in those, those ones that are only doing twice or four a year, talking to the people who kind of head up these efforts in those districts are telling me, but we're also doing, you know, just verbal training. Um, we're also doing, you know, just regular instruction where teachers will have, they, they call them conversations with their students. So there's kind of this, um, I, I think, you know, after the law came out, educators were using training and drill kind of interchangeably. Um, but now there, it seems like a distinction's being made. You know, a drill is when, from my understanding, a drill is when, you know, you're evacuating from the classroom, students are leaving the school grounds, um, you know, acting as if they, there is a threat inside that they need to get away from. Um, but then training can be, really casual. It can be something, you know, where a teacher just in the middle of the day kind of has a conversation with students um, about, you know, if something happens, this is what we do, or, you know, just answers questions, or, you know, it can be kind of an array of different, different interactions between a teacher or administrators and the students. I guess this is one of those things where we're going to, one, have to wait for your story to see if there are any additional information that we can get, and two, look at it and say, Sometimes when you rush through legislation, it needs to be fixed based on what actually happens on the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's something that I've heard from educators, too, is uh, and parents, frankly, who say, you know, I, I understand that this shooting happened and it was only a couple weeks before this legislation was rolling. You know, um, so I, I think that a lot of people in this equation feel as though the legislature rushed. Um, which, you know, could be understandable under, under the circumstances. But I, I just think that there needs to be maybe some, some backtracking. And, and like you said, go back and look, what do these decisions and what do these laws that we put into place, how are they affecting students in real time and affecting educators and really affecting the education process in Florida, um, overall in, in real time? Um, I know last week, um, part of, well, first, part of the legislation that came out, the same legislation, uh, 
said that school districts needed to establish really an office of safe schools or, or someone to head up security and safety and, and kind of carry out these missions and be the face of these missions. And, and those people were called to a meeting in Sanford last week uh, by DOE where they could kind of, you know, talk to, to people from the state and, and tell them what they're experiencing. So, it, you know, it seems that DOE is reaching out to the to this personnel and, and asking them, you know, what can we do better? What do you need? How, how is this working? And from the educators that I talked to uh, from the from who went to that meeting, they said that the consensus was kind of everyone's a little confused um, it, that the law could be more specific. And like I I said, um, I, th- I think most of them left that meeting looking toward the state and just saying, you know, we're here, we're waiting. Um, the the person who leads up school security in Alachua County, he told me, you know, we really want to carry out this mission, um, but we need them to tell us how exactly to do that. And, and when they do, we'll be happy to do it. But until then, um, I think everyone's just trying to do the best that they can and they're interpreting the law the way that they see fit. Now, strangely, I'm going to connect this to our other topic, which is student class counts. Okay. So watch me do this. Okay, I'm ready. We've had, since 2002, a state class size amendment, which has required class sizes to be shrunk down to 18, 22, and 25 based on, you know, what level they are at and what type of courses they are. Right. This week is the week that school districts around the state count their classes to see where they need to move students, where they need to move teachers, and to see if they're violating the class size amendment. And we have found that regardless of how long that has been in place, people still don't understand all the rules and they're still complaining about the way things are playing out. And I believe I've seen it. I know Marlene Sokol, our Hillsborough County reporter, has seen it. And you have in Pinellas County as well. Right. Regarding people complaining about what's going on with class size and is it going to get better now that we are already a full quarter into the school year. Tell us about your kids that you talk to. Sure. So like I said, I recently moved over to cover Pinellas schools. And one of my first school board meetings at the very end, um, four students back to back to back who had been sitting together through the whole meeting got up to address the school board. Um, they, they spoke, um, very plainly and directly about their frustration, uh, having to do with their AP class sizes. Um, and, and I'll note here just up front that AP classes do not fall under the class size amendment. Um, any class that can result in college credit cannot, it is not bound by that. So. And let in- me point out here also to further, they originally were part of the class size amendment, but because school districts complained that they were having trouble meeting all the aspects of the law, the legislature changed that. Okay, um, that that's a tidbit for me. <laughs> um, so, so these students, you know, they're frustrated. They're they're telling the school board that, you know, my class, one of my classes has thirty five students in it. One of my classes has forty three students in it. They're arguing that they don't have enough books. They don't even have enough chairs. That you know, students are having to find their own chairs and and kind of carry them to these classrooms or sit at the teacher's desk or sit you know in a chair that's designated for you know, something else that isn't a normal desk, um, you know, to even sit in class and learn. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, there's an argument to be made if students don't have the materials that they need to sit in a classroom. But um, the school board, you know, responded to them very frankly and said, you know, this doesn't fall under the class size amendment. Superintendent Mike Grego told the students that um, basically they're getting free college credits on the school district's dime and uh, kind of a number that he has 
um, touted uh, several times, uh, even at, at school district meetings, at roundtables, at community presentations, is this $12 million number um, saying that the district has saved students and families or $12 million in the 17-18 school year um, by essentially paying for AP classes, dual enrollment, and um, other other college credit um, resulting classes. So, you know, these students are arguing that they feel that their education isn't as good as it could be if the classes were smaller. So I started reaching out to teachers, um, you know, and, and often teachers don't, don't want to go on the record, but um, in, in many of those conversations, they told me, you know, we're struggling too. These students are struggling to absorb the information because we don't have time for one-on-one, you know, communication with them. Um, some students are having to come after school, which means that teachers have to work later to kind of meet, um, you know, meet with them and, and make sure that they're getting everything that they need, especially in these higher level classes. Um, but as I started talking to teachers, I they started telling me, you know, this isn't just an AP problem. And so that kind of interested me because if it's happening in regular core classes that do fall under the class size amendment, that's concerning. Um, Maybe but, let me jump in here sure. because this is not just a Pinellas County issue. I know I've been in Pasco County where I've heard from one high school in particular, 5A high school, they absorbed nearly 500 students from Ridgewood High, which t- closed and converted into a technical high school. Though the school took in the students, it didn't always have enough teachers for them all. And so a lot of students have been finding that as they're trying to move people around and reallocate numbers based on this count that is taking place, that some students don't have teachers. They have substitutes for as many as six weeks in some key classes like algebra or the senior level math class that they need to pass that algebra class still that is a requirement to get out of high school. And so the school district is trying to look at it. They're trying to figure out ways to make it happen. But they also point out that, hey, you know, we have schools of choice. This is another piece of the law that I think a lot of people get lost in it. The I want to say it was about five years ago, the legislature adopted a thing called schools of choice. It was supposed to be so that they would look at um, easing class size requirements for schools that do something special. But what happened was schools said, well, you know, we have open enrollment. It's required by state law. So all of our schools are schools of choice. They adopted this proposal. Now it's a law and they started using school-wide averages for class size, the same way that charter schools do. And, right. and suddenly you have teachers who have mega classes and other teachers that don't, but it all averages out in the wash. Right, exactly. And that that's kind of what I found from these teachers that I interviewed. They're like, you know, they take the total number of students, divide it by the total number of classes. And if that works out to be, you know, 25 or whatever the number needs to be um, in that particular situation, then they're in compliance with the class size amendment. Um, but but when you, like you said, when you look at individual classes, some of those classes could have four or five kids in them. And then other ones could have, you know, 30 kids in them. So, um, you know, it's, I think that there's a lot of things at play here. There's a teacher shortage for one. Um, then there's this, you know, the class size amendment and the way that they can calculate it. Um, and then there's more students. So, you know, it, these teachers that I spoke with, um, you know, telling me kind of, uh, you know, we have this many more students, but this many less teachers. And I just don't understand how this even works out. But I have 35 kids in my class and I don't know, I, I just can't get to it all. And I, I feel like I'm not giving them the education that they deserve. And so, um, I think it's a heavy burden that these teachers carry because their hands are kind of tied and they're kind of getting this, um, 
you know, reaction from students or seeing their students, um, you know, go to the school board or, or write on Facebook or complain or, you know, hearing these complaints. Um, and I think that that's a frustrating position to be in as an educator. Or I would assume that it is, you know, when your mission is to educate students the best that you can and you feel like you don't have the resources or, you know, situation to do that. Yeah. So once again, we find that a law and this one's a long standing law still gets in the way of people doing what they want to do. It frustrates them. And we wind up talking about this over and over again. With the count being done this week, they should be looking at what happens next should be a lot of allocations, reallocations of teachers and classrooms, rescheduling in some cases. And by now, it's the problem is it's so late. Right. You've either missed too much or you suddenly you're comfortable with a teacher and you're not with that teacher anymore or your right. classmates who have been helping you can no longer help you because you're not in their class anymore. So, I mean, it's a rough path. I mean, my son's in high school now, so I see it differently than I saw it when it was elementary and everybody was sort of all just lumped together. It's like, even if they change your class, you're still in the same pod. Right. So high schools, it's a particular difficulty. And, right. Um, and, and in high school, you know, these kids, there's a lot at stake for them, too. They're preparing for college. They're taking high-level classes. Um, and, and that's kind of at play, too, is is the district is consistently pushing more kids into AP, you know, trying to get students to want to achieve, you know, higher goals. Um, so, you know, they're or, or not necessarily even AP, but just into higher level classes. So you have students who are maybe on the cusp and, and think, I'm going to challenge myself this year. I'm going to take, you know, um, honor an honor science class or, you know, an honors English class, honors math class. And then they get there and there's so many students in their class that they can't even get a moment with their teacher, you know, what kind of, you know, that, that, that's just not a good equation. Um, I think, you know, to, to have a kid who's, who's really trying to, you know, try something new and try something more advanced, but then the class is, is so big that that kind of hinders their ability to do that. I guess we're going to find out more about how these all play out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we'll probably hear that schools have made some changes. That's why they kind of don't ever want us to talk about class size and scheduling until after the 40-day count right. and the official formal state count has taken place and why we do because a quarter has passed and kids are struggling and teachers are struggling during that period. So Right. And I, I think once those numbers are all worked out, it's easy to forget the first couple weeks of school, you know, when kids were sitting on the floor and um, you know, parents were calling the districts and, you know, all of that frustration. It's easy to forget that that happened. But um, like you said, I don't I mean, know how easy it is to forget when you have kids who are behind by a certain number of weeks because they couldn't get what they needed. Right. Yeah. It, it, I, I should say, I, I think it's uh, it's more that maybe districts would like you to forget that those, you know, it, that that period where they're kind of working things out. Um, but but those can be lasting effects, I think, for students. Good point. And and let's just end it there. Um, Megan, it's always great to have you on the podcast. I hope that you keep coming back with more and more, especially now that you're in one of our really big counties with lots of cool stuff going on all yeah, the time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've only been here for about a month, but, you know, I'll keep digging. And I, I love being on the podcast, so I'll definitely be back. That's the end of our conversation and the end of our podcast. If you'd like to participate, visit our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. To keep following the latest in Florida education breaking news, please go to our blog, www.tampabay.com slash blogs slash gradebook. We appreciate you listening to and sharing this podcast with others. We're on Google Play and Apple iTunes. In addition to being on Art19, our new platform, please subscribe, share, and review so other people can find it and enjoy whatever it is we have to say. Send us some ideas so we have others to talk about as well. 
I'm reporter Jeff Solacek. Thanks again for listening. 